absolutely delighted to uh, welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Rita McGrath, um, and I'm a professor at Columbia Business School, among many other things, and a dear friend of Alex Osterwalder and his co-author, Eve Pinier. Uh, and today we're here to talk about his, their new book, The Invincible Company, which launches officially April 14th. But like so many other things that are happening in our world right now, we have no idea when it's actually going to find its way into the world. Um, a few housekeeping things. This uh, webinar is being recorded, so just bear that in mind um, as you think about anything you might want to say. I'll be doing my best to keep up with the chat and with the Q&A. Um, we'll preserve those, so if you have questions we can't get to during the webinar, um, we'll try to capture them after, after we close. Um, there's the active chat room, and you can easily uh, ask us questions, make comments. Uh, we're, we're very flexible. The format for today is quite informal. We don't have formal presentation. Uh, we might have some visual illustrations. We'll, we'll, a bit of mystery. We'll see about that. Um, so I think that's all we need to do in the way of setup. Um, so the, the book, The Invincible Company, um, is one of a series of books that Alex and Eve and their colleagues have been putting together, beginning, of course, with the very famous um, uh, business model uh, book, which really sort of kicked off this whole motion towards visual books and visual clarity. And I, I guess my first question for you, uh, Alex and Eve, would be, um, when you embarked on that book, which was, as I understand, a crowdsourced product with you know lots of input from lots of different places, did you have any inkling that it might create such an impression? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. We knew exactly. Of course not. <laughs> so, um, you know, I remember, <laughs> I remember when Eve and I were sitting uh, at the University of Lausanne having lunch and we sketched out, uh, we said, we're going to write down a number, you know, what would success look like? And the number we put down is, we said 50,000 books. And we didn't know back then that even 50,000 books is really, really hard, right? <laughs> in, in publishing business books. So that was kind of our hope. And then, you know, what happened afterwards was obviously a big surprise. We knew our tools were good, but you can't imagine that something will spread uh, that fast, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but you can now turn it into a series. So, the, so the, what? No, because you were talking about this series. And definitely, you know, once we saw the success, we asked ourselves what worked. And it was the visual aspect, the tools aspect, the very practical aspect. So we started writing more books, always based on the problems we would see in the field, right? So we would learn something is not working and we try to fix it. So even I, you know, Eve often calls us the plumbers of business. When we say, see a problem, we try to fix it. And that's, <laughs> <You're we wrenching>. <laughs> that's fabulous. <laughs> that's absolutely marvelous. So can you say a little bit about your process? I see you've got the wall behind you uh, kind of with layouts of the book. Is that what that is? So the book takes form visually in your space? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about behind the book, the, the book wall behind me, and then maybe Eve can, can share one or two anecdotes because I always embark him on things and he always, he always joins the journey. He knows it's going to be crazy. We're going to go all over the place. But so behind me, you can see the um, spreads of the book. So Every time we, we craft a book, I wouldn't even say write a book because we don't really write. We, we look at double pages. We look at the concepts we want to put on a page. And then we, you know, iterate through that. So we put the concept first. Then we would look at the case that we want to put there. And then we start working on the design. So every one of these pages behind me 
went through maybe 10, 15, 20 iterations, not just the visual part, not just the design, but the concept. So we like to look at books as a, you know, something that has a user interface and a user experience. <laughs> so for us, every page, and then obviously the entire book should be a, a great user experience. And you know, our way of creating stuff, and there's, that's not the only way, but our way of creating stuff is uh, very visual, very practical, um, because it, you know, from the beginning, it kind of worked for us. When, when even I started with the first book, the idea was let's create a book that we would buy. And because we were self-publishing first, we could do whatever we wanted. That's right? true. <laughs> well, maybe Eve, you can, tell, you can talk about the journey of the, the beginning. Do you remember um, how we embarked on this one? And we started in a small Swiss village in the Swiss house. We took, I think, three days and we tried to sketch out the first idea of the business model portfolio and some idea for the content of the future book. And it was more than two years ago, I think, maybe 30 months. It, it was a long process. And when Alex uh, explained you that uh, it's a lot of iterations, the iteration is not only for the writing, for the concept, but also for the design. And also because we try to get feedback from people during the writing. Mm -hmm. So it means that based on the feedback we can collect, we also are ready to change and to iterate. Mm -hmm. That's fabulous. And the book started, Rita, you know where the book started? In a, in a, in a valley that you actually know, Val d'Eran. So in La Sage, uh -huh. above, uh, you know, so, so that's a place where we wrote the first book as well. <laughs> That's lovely that we used to holiday there. Absolutely. So um, to, to kind of move on to the content of the book and, and before doing that, um, you know, we've gotten some questions, those of us that write books and, you know, my book is pretty recent and a lot of my colleagues regretfully are kind of doing books this month and we get asked, well, is that really, you know, what we should be focusing on right now? And I actually think it is because, um, you know, solid ideas are going to survive what is hopefully a temporary crisis. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't know how temporary, it, temporary could be longer than temporary normally is, but, but I think really to think about issues like resilience and building for the future and how do you kind of get above the immediate day to day and really focus on what's important for the long term. I think those are eternal topics. So um, I, I encourage people to bring their ideas into the world. Goodness knows we don't need fewer good ideas. <laughs> so the book um, has three themes, and perhaps you could go into each at a high level, and then we'll dig into some more depth. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, we asked the same question to ourselves, should we, should we launch a book now? <laughs> and I put out a Twitter poll and asked people, you know, is this, is this appropriate, or is it inappropriate to, to launch a book now? with the title Invincible Company. And within, you know, about 20 hours, we had 1,500 votes <laughs> and 85%, 85 or 86% said, yes, you have to put it out there because they were interested in, in, the, in the content. And many said, you know, the world is not going to stop. It's going to change indeed. But these topics of resilience, of change, of, you know, you know how do you build a company that can survive this kind of atomic bomb scenario, those are all very relevant topics and people want actually more content. So I can only encourage everybody to share uh, during this period because it's also a period of reflection, I think. And I'm going to hear, I want to hear a couple of your ideas later as well. Oh, absolutely. I'm happy to do that. But I also think, you know, it's a time for people. I know an awful lot of people who have this mantra, you know, oh, I'll have time to sit down and read that pile of books when, you know, 
when I've got the next annual review done or when I get done with this tour or when I get done with it. And, you know, and when never arrives. And so I encourage people to really be thinking about maybe when has arrived and now's really the time to take some time to reflect and, and, and you know, tend to those things that you know are important, but just in all the busyness, it hasn't really been able to happen. Um, so back to the three themes. So the, the first theme is this whole idea of reinventing yourself while you're successful, right? this whole idea of portfolio management. So how do you not just lean back and say, oh, you know, we're doing great. We're going to get better and better at what we're already doing. <laughs> you know, you need that culture of day one. So that Jeff Bezos famously calls their, you know, their, 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 their culture a culture of day one. You never relax. You're obsessed by going out of business and you reinvent yourself. And that's hard, right? When you're successful, easy to kind of get arrogant. So then the second one is really, um, we're in, you know, there's a library of business model patterns in the book where we show how you can compete, not just on product, price, and services, but how do you compete on better business models, superior mm. business models? So we really, you know, like a, like a pattern library in architecture or in design in general, we try to show people this is, these are better business models and you use them as inspiration. I think in particular now, you have to ask yourself, oh, you know, <laughs> how can we change our business model? And you can already see that some business models uh, are more resilient than others. Because now if you're just in a transactional model where you sell stuff, that's a very tough time to survive. But when you're in a, you know, a business model where you have more of a platform, you have recurring revenues, you're much safer today. So that's the second theme. And then the third theme is this whole idea of, and I think you can talk about this quite a lot, right? Transcending industry boundaries. So not competing in an industry anymore. So not saying, hey, I'm a pharmaceutical company or I'm an airplane builder. You have to think beyond that, the, the, the business, you know, the unit of analysis becomes the business model. So if you think Amazon, you can't put them into an industry anymore. Their business model does e-commerce for consumers and does infrastructure for companies at the same time. These are not two separate companies. It's not a, an a old school conglomerate. It's one business model that does both well because the back end is the same. So it's those kind of things you know, that, that, that start to make you invincible. If you can reinvent yourself all the time, if you compete on better business models, and if you are able to transcend industry boundaries. It's fascinating, you know, as, as a strategist, fellow strategists, um, and if I go back to the work of Edith Penrose, you know, back in the day, in the 50s, um, and she asked at the time of her fellow economists, she said, what is an industry? You know, we made that up. And her study of growth, fascinatingly, I think is sort of a presagement of what you found here in the book, because what she said was entrepreneurially minded managers uh, know, deeply know the capabilities of their companies, and they look for places where those capabilities could be built out. And that that is really the secret sauce behind the corporate growth phenomenon that she observed. And, you know, of course, on her work, it was built the resource-based view of the firm and all these other wonderful concepts. But I think it's so interesting that many of our public policies and many people that make decisions about sort of the structure of how we build our economies have not really don't really understand that. You know, so I think it's, this is a really important moment because I think I think we're potentially on the brink of a great rewriting of a lot of the rules of how capitalist systems work. And so I think books like yours, based on that long tradition, are, are so, um, so informative. So um, 
you know, we've talked about portfolio management. It's a particularly, it's a particular obsession of mine. I know it's an obsession of yours. Um, but you know, why, why do companies by and large have such a dreadful record <laughs> of doing a good job of managing both their exploration portfolios and their exploitation portfolios? Why do you think that is? I can only assume, right? But you know, what, what we've seen is that reinvention hasn't been as important in the past, right? You could build competitive advantage. And of wow. course, you know, you talk about the end of competitive advantage. You used to be able to compete on one business model for a very long time. And the challenge is that business models are expiring faster than ever before, right? Like business models <laughs> expire like a yogurt in the fridge. You <laughs> can't live, you can't even as a, as, a, as a manager, you can't live through the same business model. You have to reinvent yourself because there's more competition, there's disruption, there's new technologies, there's new opportunities as well. And, you know, think of it this way. Today, if um, Tesla hadn't disrupted the car industry the last decade, probably they would be exactly in the same spot, right? And so it's this whole idea that you need some kind of external force <laughs> to disrupting you or, or changing you for you to even do that. There are only a few companies that have been able kind of to reinvent themselves. Now, if you want to, you can. And my favorite example from the book is actually Ping An. I don't know how well you know Ping An. Actually, very few people know uh, Ping An. A bit over seven years ago, they were still a traditional banking and insurance conglomerate. And then Peter Mao, the founder, decided, no, 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 this is not going to work. We're going to die. We need to become a technology company. <laughs> and they put in place a system that is remarkably similar to Amazon, where they experiment a lot. So from the beginning, Peter Ma said, we're not going to get it right. So he hired a co-CEO, Jessica Tan, who was responsible for helping through this transition. And it was all about experimentation. And they failed a ton. But they also built really big winners. So here's what's interesting. That goes back to your theme of arenas also. Ping An today has the, in their portfolio, has the biggest health platform of the planet with Ping An Good Doctor. Over 300 million users. Now think of that. It's not Novartis, right? It's not GlaxoSmithKline. It's a banking and, 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 uh, and insurance conglomerate that does that. But that requires this thinking and the entrepreneurial thinking we need to shift. So there are a couple of things, you know, now there's external disruption, but there's also this idea that you probably need a more entrepreneurial kind of senior leader for this even to happen. Because for a long time, that was not the core skill. It was to manage a company well, to make it lean. And now we're in the other extreme, we're making them too lean. So they're not surviving the, the, the atomic bomb scenario of now, right? And you talk about that quite a bit. Well, this is one of the fascinating things about the whole cohort of direct-to-consumer companies, you know, the dollar shave clubs and all those. And while some of them have broken through and created an enduring model, an awful lot of them have found, yeah, it's really easy to start. Um, Casper would be an example of this, you know. So Casper paved the way for the mattress in a box business. And now there are literally 172 mattress in a box companies. So it's easy to start, but very hard to scale. One example, Eve, Eve told me about an example, um, I think it was one day or two days ago, that it's not so easy to do this pivot fast. What was the example, Eve, that you mentioned of a company, an established company is trying to pivot now? I don't remember. It was at the, the bookstore. 
Payo, I think. Ah, Payo. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a bookstore in Switzerland. And they tried to pivot because of the crisis from uh, libraries, uh, from bookstores to e-commerce. And they tried a couple of days and they stopped because they were not able to put in place the processes to execute. So the, the, the interesting thing is that if you never built up these capabilities to explore, you can't do it overnight. And that's what a lot of companies seem to be discovering. Yeah. And also for Pingham that Alex mentioned, uh, they were also ready to fail on some of their experience. I was about that. How did they, I mean, we know that, that a lot of times, you know, successful innovation is uh, in many cases a numbers game, right? I mean, you have to have so many things you're tying. And I always like to say, you know, really fantastic ideas and really awful ideas look almost identical at birth. It's very hard to tell which is going to be the one. Um, so how did, were there some specific things they did to overcome this fear of failure? So the, the, the big one is that, you know, and, and this is why, why established companies are so bad at it, the important one is to understand that the world of execution is different from the world of search and exploration. And the ratio that you just mentioned is the most important. You need to accept that you can't pick the winner and you need to accept that you're going to fail a lot. And, you know, this whole lean startup movement actually did one dangerous thing. People think they can pivot themselves to success. If I just pivot and search for long enough, I'm going to, I'm going to win. But the reality is a little bit different. You actually need to work more like a venture capitalist. You need to invest in several projects and then kill them very quickly and only invest in those that succeed. Because as you said, you did, at the beginning, they all look great, right? There's nobody in the company who's going to you know, pitch a stupid idea. They all look great. And you know what the ratio is for one outlier, how many projects you need to invest in? It's actually 250 to one. So you would have to invest in at least 250 projects to get a 50x return. Now, that doesn't, probably doesn't even mean a multi-billion dollar revenue business. So the ratio is probably even bigger. So those numbers come from early stage venture capital. Then the small companies say, or the business units say, yeah, but we can't do 250. Well, if you do 10, you probably you know, just produce 10 million or 50 million in revenue. But if you want to create another multi-billion dollar business, you need a large ratio. And it's not about carrying 250 or 500 projects for long. You actually need to kill them very quickly. So a good example is Bosch. They invest in over three years. It's a public example. They invested in 169 projects, 100,000 euro, 169. But after three months, they killed 70%. So they only invest in 30%. And then from those 30%, they go six months and then they only invest in, in again, 30%. So you weed out the projects that shouldn't get more money. So today in more, many companies, we still have those zombies, right? Walking around. So they do that extremely well. They do that extremely well. <laughs> so um, one of the, the things just by way of tools, you know, that can help companies with this is one of the dangerous things we've allowed to happen to many innovation conversations is we get all hung up on conventional business metrics like net present value, just as an example. And one of the dangerous assumptions that a net present value mindset creates is that you're going to carry every project you you start to its natural conclusion. And instead, what I would argue is you need to be looking at things in terms of option value. And let's say you budgeted two and a half million dollars for a program. And after 
and my colleague uh, Ryan McManus and I read a lot about this. And after you know three, four checkpoints, you say, "Wait a minute, we spent one hundred and twenty thousand, but um, it's not. It's not, this is not the best use of our time." And you stop. My God, you should be rewarded for that. You know, instead of going on and spending the rest of the two million, you hand it back to the company. Maybe you get a pat on the back, and we all get to do something more productive. <laughs> so I think it's very consistent with that um, that way of of, of thinking. Um, let's talk about you know innovation for a bit and and you know the word has gotten to be very buzzy um, I think as as executives sort of figure out that competitive advantages aren't going to carry them and just as an aside you know traditionally it is entirely possible to be an executive and never have touched innovation in your life you know you, you were raised you were promoted for being a great operator you know, keep the wheels on the bus, optimize, all that stuff. Um, and now they're all sort of going, ooh, innovation. Um, <laughs> but I see an awful lot of what Steve Blank calls innovation theater out there. Um, if you could sort of take three myths about innovation off the table, well, what would be your favorite targets? <laughs> I'll let Eve do the second one. I'll do the first one. Um, <laughs> my, my favorite myth is that, and it comes back to what we just discussed, is that you need to make big bets for big returns. Mm -hmm. And I like that note. That's such an important point. And Vinod Kosla, you know, the, the co-founder of Sun Microsystems, fam famous investor, he has a good point. He says, you know, and he, he does it for the startup world, but it's actually the same for corporate innovation. He says, the more money you give a company, a startup, the less likely they are to succeed. Now that sounds very counterintuitive, but the fact is if you give a, co a company or a project too much money, what are they gonna do? They're going to build their fantasy. Yep. They're gonna execute a business plan, right? And that's a huge, huge mistake because what you really wanna do is start small, test immediately, and then adapt your value proposition and business model. Mm -hmm. And that's the big mistake that many large companies do. They, they want to make a big return and they invest big rather than spreading their portfolio. Right. And one of the other things I would observe is we're seeing the exact same disease in the, the heavily funded VC startups, right? I mean, you know, build a product market fit before you go invest in ping pong balls and kumbacha machines and whatever else is the, you know, the, the, the flavor of the day. Um, and I think it's having all that resource that, that just they get sloppy. They get sloppy. So Eve, what's you were going to take us through the yeah, second Yeah, what's, what's the second one? And then, and then Rita, I want to hear from you, your biggest uh, uh, myth. Oh, that oh, you see. Sure, <laughs> we can do that. I think one another myth is that it's possible to manage an, invent, an invention or exploration project as an execution project. So it means that you have an idea, you fix everything, you have a plan to reach this one, you accomplish this plan and you are quite sure that you will reach the objective yeah, that you initially fixed. Mm. And I think for exploration, the culture is completely different. You need to be ready to experiment, to test and to go back and to have this process, which is much similar to the startup process. Uh, and I think it's one of the big myths, for, especially for uh, voluntary CEOs and executives, that we will do it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so my biggest myth, if, if, if that interests you, um, I think my biggest myth that, that I think gets in the way is this notion that, you know, to, to innovate effectively, you have to uh, be some sort of 
you know, you have to be born. It has to be a genius. You know, you have to be, you know, Steve Jobs and you appear on a clamshell in the middle of the night and, you know, the earth opens. And I mean, yes, of course, you know, talent and, and creativity and those flashes of insight are all part of the mix. But you could say that about any form of human endeavor. So what, what I would argue is, you know, the vast part of innovation is, is well understood we know how to do this. We know what some of the ingredients are. And the the unwillingness, I think, to sort of even step a toe in the water until you're convinced you have this genius is, is a big problem. On the flip side, there are an awful lot of would-be innovation geniuses who really are not Steve Jobs and who really are not, you know, one of those. And yet they sort of build this cult of personality around them. You see that's a fair bit in the well-funded startup world, you know, where you've got these people who are, um, you know, very talented, but but they don't have that that vision, perhaps that, that Jobs or, or someone like that had. One, uh, one of the things, can I build on what you just said? Course. Because I think that's really important to to emphasize that even more. So one of the things, you know, with all our books and with the one behind me, you know, what we try to do is push kind of the boundaries. We frankly believe that innovation is, is almost like a profession. It's starting to get boring because we know how it works, right? So it's almost getting closer to accounting than anything else. But that also means you don't learn it over a weekend, you know, at a workshop or a startup weekend or so. It's something that's, that's hard to learn and you need to learn it more like a, like a doctor. You don't just learn the theory, but you have to learn the theory, right? Anatomy, physiology. At the same time, you need the practice. So it's back and forth. It's not one or the other because I don't like it when people say, ah, oh, no, startup, you, you just have to do it. No, there is, it's, it's actually a profession. And then there are those say, well, you can teach it. Yes, you can, but you also need to practice. So most successful entrepreneurs is not the first time. There's this myth of the first time founder, you know, 20 years old. The statistics show you something else. It's actually after 40, 45, where founders are most successful. And the same will go inside the corporations. And then the, the, maybe one myth to add, <laughs> because we're talking about create, you know, innovation, kind of skills or talent, I think there is that aspect. So often CEOs think we need to bring in the talent. I've never seen a large company that didn't have brilliant people who could come up with new ventures. It's more a systems problem. You need to take down the barriers that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's, you know, that are blocking them from actually living up to their potential and the idea is to live up to the potential. It's never a talent problem. Very seldom. Very seldom. Um, it, it sometimes is a resources problem or, a, or an access problem or whatever. I talk a lot about organizational Sherpas, you know, and these are those people who are in their 40s and 50s. They know the organization, you know, they know where all the bodies are buried. They've got favors they can trade. And those are often the people that are these just in, you know, essential uh, to an innovation project going forth because you know the last thing a little startup needs is to be told oh I'm from corporate I'd love to learn how you do things you know actually no I've got a job to do and it's not educating you <laughs> about what our entrepreneurship is um, so one of the questions that's come up in the chat is um, do you have any examples of publicly traded companies that you would say um, kind of get this right now could I also say one thing that is a particular bugaboo of mine uh, as, a, as a business school professor and, and so forth. You know, we study, by definition, we study companies who are made up of imperfect human beings who never get everything exactly right, who occasionally screw up in a big way. But I think it's really important for people to remember you can have a great, well thought through process with everything going right 
coronavirus happens, you know, and all your well-laid plans and terrific processes are thrown out the window and you got to sort of start from scratch. And you can be terrible, horrible, unthinking, you know, staggeringly blind and be in the right place at the right time. So one of the big problems I see with strategy in general is we tend to confuse the outcome with how good the strategy was. And um, my friend Phil Rosenzweig calls this the halo effect. He says, because we know the outcome, obviously everything that company did was received wisdom. But that doesn't mean we can't learn from the ones that maybe didn't succeed or the ones that didn't move forward. You know, one of the most interesting stories that I've been following recently is the story of General Magic. Remember General Magic? I mean, they invented pretty much everything that today has become part of our lives in the modern cell phone, but they were way ahead of their time, <laughs> you know, which doesn't negate anything that they did. So I think that's, that's kind of an important um, thing to remember. Um, so back to the, the question of, of how do you differentiate between, how do, how do you find an organization or two that are pretty good at this? So I am going to steal one of the things you say all the time, because okay. I found it a very brilliant tactic actually in the field. Because uh -huh. I get people asking me, you know, how do I know if my company is really taking innovation seriously? And I use, I call it now the Rita McGrath test. <laughs> you. I have a test named after me. That's my 15 minutes of fame right there. <laughs> so basically, you know, what you said, I, I found that extremely powerful. And I use this li literally as a test. Now, I ask, you know, how much time does your CEO spend on innovation every week? Mm -hmm. And, you know, looking into the agenda, um, you know, seeing the, what are the concrete things? How much time does the CEO spend with, uh, you know, future not, you know, clients who are not yet clients, but are completely out there, spend with the teams, with the innovation lead, et cetera, et cetera. If, if for me, if it's not 50%, 40 to 50% of his or her time, this, you know, this company is never going to innovate. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking R&D, you know, you can have R&D and not innovate. Right? So we've seen that in a couple of companies. So for me, that's the number one test that shows the seriousness and, uh, you know, one of the companies we like, and maybe Eve can talk about that a bit, where that is the case, is Logitech with yeah. Bracken Darrell at the helm. Yes, I think Bracken Darrell spent maybe 70% of his time for exploration. And in his strategy, he decided to uh, took 70% of the profit of the execution machine for exploration, mm. which is huge for a medium company, if you want. Very interesting, very interesting. So um, a question's come up on the chat about, um, so you've got these publicly traded companies, they're highly leveraged. They, they say they're having to drive the organization for the benefit of their shareholders. And I certainly have a point of view on this, but I'd be very interested to see, to listen to what your point of view is on, on these kind of questions. So to be honest, for a very long time, I wasn't sure that you know, I, I did hear CEOs saying, you know, working with CEOs, hearing them say it's very hard, you know, the, the, the financial markets and so. And I wasn't quite sure, you know, is this even possible given the constraints? But it turns out, you know, there are a couple of CEOs who really did it and not, you know, Jeff Bezos easy, right? Because he has the power <laughs> to, to do it. He doesn't have to listen to the stock market that much. But take um, Unilever with Paul Pullman. When he, you know, started and had this vision of, A, we're gonna do long-term and we're gonna do sustainability. Not at the expense of profit and growth, but you know, in harmony. But the first thing he did was abolish quarterly you know, reporting. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so it can be done. So 
it's easy to say it's excuses when, when, when CEOs don't do it, it's hard. And they're, you know, they're probably not even, they don't even have all of the power. It's the board and it's the, the stock market, the owners, but it can be done. So it's a lot harder to do something that not, you know, the majority doesn't do, but uh, it can be done. So I'd be curious to, to, to see, to hear from you maybe if you see more CEOs starting to take that step because it is a hard one, right? I mean, we have to be very realistic. It's not easy. Well, um, so if I go back to Penrose just for a minute, um, you know, those 1950s companies she studied had a really different philosophy of what gave a company a mandate to be, you know, and that was what now people are calling stakeholder capitalism, right? So they were invested in their employees. They invested in, their communities, they invested in long-term capability building. Um, and one of the things that resulted, and again, this is not, I'm not saying the 50s was a perfect time. What I'm saying is there was far more of a balance in how we allocated corporate resources than I think we've seen since perhaps the 80s. And I think right now we are so out of balance where the bulk of corporate resources are you know, basically being used for financial means um, rather than being invested as retained earnings. And Penrose herself said, you know, a company built for the long term is going to fund most of its growth from its own retained earnings. They're not going to look to investors to come in and bring them their growth. So, so that's one observation I would make, which is we've been sort of lulled into this, um, you know, maximizing shareholder value. Ide- it's an ideology. I mean, we've been sort of persuaded by that ideology that, um, that, that the best thing to do is sort of extract resources from companies. But a lot of times what happens is you, you know, you're really weakening the fabric of what's left behind. And, and I don't think we pay enough attention to the damage that that does on a whole number of different dimensions. And so things like, um, and uh, William Lozanic from the University of Massachusetts writes about this. He says, you know, things like a, a very minority activist shareholder being able to kind of wag the tail of a, of, a, of a large company with many other stakeholders. You know, why do we let that happen the way that it does? So, there, and again, I think this setback is an opportunity to really start from kind of almost scratch and rethink uh, because we're, we're re-knitting the economies of the world, even as we um, speak. Second thing, a little more um, uh, sort of tactically is um, my colleague and I um, have my colleague, Alex Van Putten, and I have developed a method that we're calling the imagination premium. And just at high level, what you can do is you can break apart uh, the market capitalization of a public um, publicly run company into what shareholders think they should de- they deserve for its operations, so value of operations, versus what shareholders are willing to invest in because they think this company has great growth prospects. And what we've seen, uh, we call it the tip, the, the imagination premium, uh, and what we've interestingly seen is you don't want to be too low because that signals weakness. It signals, for example, if you're doing a ton of stock buybacks and no investment in innovation and people don't trust your claims about what's going to be innovative, um, that your sort of takeover bait or an activist is going to come in or whatever. But if it's too high, it's very fragile. At that point, you, you have to hit everything perfectly or people are going to suddenly freak out. Tesla would be an example. You know, Elon Musk has one bad press conference and he loses $6 billion in market cap by that afternoon. Um, so what we want is somewhere kind of in the middle where you've got that balance that you talk about in the book between exploration, exploitation. And we're developing this concept now as a way of saying, can we measure that? You know, can we measure that? for publicly traded companies, where we basically give a CEO a bit of a weapon to say to the board, look, our imagination premium is not where it needs to be. 
you know, shareholders are not happy about that. And that's one way we can invest to um, improve our market cap. And guess what? If you get it right, your market cap goes up, your shareholder goes up, and it can be a win-win for everybody. So that's, that's a second approach that I've kind of taken, uh, taken for that. Um, so so could, you, could you kind of elaborate on this notion that most of your um, um, investments when you're in this sort of options, 250 to get one that might be a big bet, um, how do you keep people focused on the fact that what we're after here is a contained investment for kind of a massive opportunity of return and that very few uh, opportunities are going to really pass through that judgment. So it's, it's again, the portfolio approach, right? So we really need to make sure that the leadership is not looking at a project per se, but is looking at the return on portfolio. Yeah, so, that's an important point. And, and that's not obvious, right? Because in, as you've said, in the execution side, on the execution side, you give money for a project and the project needs to succeed. Mm-hmm. Otherwise you fail in your failure career. Mm-hmm. Now over here, it's actually, you know, take the pharmaceutical industry. There are a lot of scientists who never find a molecule, right? But they're part of the success because if they don't search, <laughs> you're not going to have that. And the ratio is a lot bigger there, right? <laughs> you won't have that one success. So you need to look at the return on the portfolio and have a very good system to weed out, so really, you know, at every stage, you know how you're gonna kill projects. Mm-hmm. And if you do that well, and, and this is where Bosch, again, to mention one public example, is pretty impressive because the teams themselves know that they shouldn't get follow-up investment. So 90%, there's a 90% overlap between what the team thinks, should we get follow-up investment, and what the leadership thinks. Okay. 90% overlap, because they know exactly what evidence do they need to have at each stage. So it's really interesting. The metrics completely change. And that's a big challenge. So with even a couple of corporations, we, we had this consortium where we looked at innovation metrics. Mm-hmm. Now, how do innovation metrics, so reducing risk and uncertainty, the return on the portfolio, et cetera, how does that change compared to the execution at, at metrics? And that's where I also like your imagination premium. If we can't put a value on the portfolio of exploration that a company has, we're always just going to look at the ex- execution part. It's almost like we need to analyze the two parts of the company. Yeah, Today, yeah. the analysts, they're only looking at one part of the company. And that's why it's much easier for companies today to just acquire because nobody's valuing their innovation portfolio. This is actually one of the biggest concerns of uh, many CEOs. They say, you know, for, for, for acquisitions, I have a checklist. I have lawyers. And the stock market knows exactly how to deal with that. Over here on the left, I have a black box. Nobody really knows how it works in my management team. And the stock market doesn't know how to value that. So I can only get it wrong. So obviously you're going to hedge your bets. So until we figure out how to really look at that part more systematically, you know, nobody's ever going to really value it. And only the very courageous CEOs are going to push on to actually build something like that. So one a question that came up in the chat and that I get a lot from, especially from my economist friends is, you know, if a company's going to get old and be a dinosaur and it's entrenched and it's bureaucratic, you know, why should we worry about it? Like, why don't we just take our capital, pull it out of that company, let them collapse and put the money into, you know, buzzy startup ventures or something new or somebody that's got the act of better. Um, and I, again, have a point of view on this, but I'd be very interested in your perspective. 
I'd be interested uh, on, on Eve's perspective as well. I'll start with this in the sense that, you know, for me, you know, I'm asking myself this question quite often with our company strategizer, you know, why, why are we helping big, large companies innovate? Is it to help them grow more, to have a better return, to please their shareholders? No, I, I believe actually it's almost a moral obligation <laughs> in the sense that if we can help established companies reinvent themselves, they're not going to get disrupted because the social cost of a company that needs to lay off 10,000 or you know, 50,000, 100,000 people, like is happening now, the social cost is so high that if they can reinvent themselves, you know, they, won't have, they won't have that cost. The society won't have to carry that cost. So it's easy to say, you know, oh, you know, I'm in my beautiful office and I'm saying, oh, you know, startups are gonna disrupt this and that's just natural life. Well, the human cost behind it is, is enormous. So I think that's the part, you know, that should motivate us also to help these large corporations to continue to innovate. And then the second piece to that for me is, it's not just about innovation to create more products, you know, that create value for society, but it's also to create better workplaces. Because at the end of the day, you know, seven out of 10 people, they don't want to work where they, where they are. They don't enjoy work. They're not engaged. They actually want to change jobs. So great. That means seven out of 10 people are not enjoying eight hours at work or however number of hours you work. So that's just not good. So I think there's, a, there's an opportunity to improve companies to help them get better so we can help, you know, create a better society. But that's very idealistic. <laughs> Well, you know, and, and uh, I'll go back to Penrose again. Um, if, you, if you look at these combinations of scarce and valuable resources that are part of the big company asset base, right? And, you know, it's human beings with, with idiosyncratic, unique skills and, and abilities. It's communities that have um, coalesced around a particular, you know, category of capabilities. Um, and all those things, as, as you said, and I, I guess I wouldn't focus so much on the social cost when I look at them, but, but you know, there is this sort of enormous loss of societal capability. Um, and I love startups. I think startups are fantastic. But, but you know, startups in many cases don't scale. Um, startups can't afford the kind of traditional investments in personal development and the creation of great workspaces and, you know, things like, um, you know, diversity of thought and, and lifting people out of poverty and that kind of thing. I mean, it, it, they can do some of that and some of them succeed remarkably, but the vast majority don't. I mean, the vast majority of small businesses, um, you know, stay small. <laughs> and, and, uh, and so to get scale, to get scope, to have the kind of, um, um, you know, returns that allow those longer term investments, I think is, is hard. And that brings me to my second kind of concern when you say, oh, well, that's just, these companies are just disposable. Um, they are among the few actors in society that when properly managed can actually take uh, a longer term perspective. So one of the companies I've been drawn to is Corning. Um, and Corning's strategy very explicitly is we need to be five to 10 years ahead of where our clients or where our customers are going to be. And they have um, uh, a set of procedures that the policies that fit into that. So it is still possible to join Corning and have a 40 year career there. It is possible to have a very, um, strongly held beliefs, but be willing to change your mind about those strongly held beliefs uh, when the new evidence comes in. And I was chatting to their CEO some months back and, and I said, well, how do you make these decisions? Like what data do you use, whatever? And he said, 
what we do is over many years of trial and error and effort and experimentation, we develop judgment. So this isn't a spreadsheet. This isn't a you know, PowerPoint. This isn't dancing balonies on a whatever. It's, it's judgment. It's, it's that, that pattern recognition and that sense of what could be a big uh, win now. Uh, and so I think, I think I would make the case for the mature company. Now, not all mature companies. Some of them are you know, abysmal, abysmally abusive places that should be put out of their misery. And I'm fine with those going away. But, but there, the, the, you know, a lot of companies have gems hidden in there and, and so forth. Um, so a question that came up is uh, about the nature of ecosystems. And I know that's one of the business models you um, talk about a lot. And I'd love to hear your thoughts and perhaps Eve as well on, you know, what's changed? I mean, ecosystems today is kind of like innovation. It's one of those buzzy words everybody's talking about and then platform business strategies. And, um, and what in your view has really made those things possible? And, you know, are they more attractive than we perhaps thought of them historically? Um, so what, what, what are your thoughts on how we should think about ecosystems strategically? I'll let you go first. <laughs> yeah. the, you know, the hard question, this is how we work together. Uh -huh. The hard question, they always go to Eve. Ah, okay. okay. Uh, wait a minute. I need time. <laughs> no. uh, I think this idea of ecosystem the concept of ecosystem has different meaning, I think, for different people. Mm -hmm. And we have seen that at the last Rucker Forum. I think everything seems to be no ecosystem. Uh, for us, I think ecosystem is a way to harmonize different business models working maybe in the same direction, but mm -hmm. with uh, uh, keeping the independency to act maybe trying to reach the same goal, which is not so clear, but we agree on it. Mm -hmm. So I think this kind of things uh, of collaboration going in the same direction together seems to be meaningful, maybe a little bit more than before because of the social value, also ecological or environmental things. And so I think it's interesting. I, and we need, I think, we still need to come with new concepts to help people to establish those kind of ecosystems. Uh, I think the tools that we have seen so far are maybe not so well appropriate. Yeah, so um, I'll share with you something I'm working on right now, which is a concept I'll call ecosystem maturity. Um, and so if you look at the response of entities to a strategic inflection point or something that's a big change, right? Um, one of the things I've seen is that there's a lot of energy and excitement when these things first begin to make themselves felt and a lot of investment, often over investment, but the ecosystem isn't mature enough yet to really be in the world yet. So if I think about um, autonomous vehicles, I'll just use that as an example. The technology part is not the hard part. The technology is kind of here and now, and we can see it at use and it's not perfect but it's good enough for a lot of applications but we don't know the ownership regime we don't have the risk regime we don't have the institutional regime we don't even know what the business models are yet for a lot of those things and so you've got an ecosystem that needs to be there as you were saying Eve, that that needs the parties all moving in a common direction but it's almost like there's no unifying principle yet and what we see and i'll, I'll i think if you look at the big the big tech companies today um, they were very fortunate. I mean, they were very skillful, very smart, but they were also very fortunate to come into an environment where 
all the different elements of the ecosystem were in place. I mean, if you go back to Google, just to take one example of a fabulously smart, really com great company, but you know, there was a time the company was on its knees. They were trying to sell themselves for something like a million dollars. And, and then the thing that sort of brought it all together was the monetization ability represented by selling ads. Um, but before that, they had all these other pieces, but they didn't have the business model piece. And it wasn't until that fell into place that they as an individual company uh, could be um, successful. The, the, what I would add to the ecosystem discussion is, you know, again, like you've said, they're different. We use the word for many different things. Right. But there's one question that came up here by, by Victor. Um, there's the, the explore portfolio that you create is also an ecosystem, right? You, as a senior leader, what you put in place is a ecosystem that allows the best ideas to emerge and the best teams to emerge so the winner comes out. There's an ecosystem where you connect with the universities, you connect with the internal skills, with the uh, customers, you need to make those connections. So that in itself is also an ecosystem that you need to enable as a senior leader. Now, the question that came up here is, okay, well, <laughs> now, given this crisis, we're seeing a lot of, you know, companies cutting the costs. And as we know, for those out there who are listening and who are in innovation, is always one of the first things that are cut in the companies that don't understand kind of the deep value of that. Because the problem with innovation so far is, you know, it's not an institutionalized budget. R&D is an institutionalized budget, but again, innovation is not R&D. R&D is products and, and technology and science. Innovation is creating value for customers and business models that can scale. Now, there is no institutionalized budget for that, so it's always the first thing that will fall. But again, those companies that really figured it out they institutionalize their innovation practices, they institutionalize their innovation ecosystem, and it won't be at risk in a crisis like this. And I think, and I'm throwing this question back to you, Rita and, and Eve, you know, is do you see some companies that because they created those ecosystems and made them robust, that they're better at responding in today's environment? Again, it's a very extreme environment, it's a black swan, nobody prepared for it. But do you see both of you, and you know, do you see companies that are better prepared for this than others because they maybe had you know, already that exploratory attitude? I, I can start, or Eve, did you want to start? Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I think, so let's go back to, um, and I know you're a recovering academic, Alex. So uh, <laughs> at one point you lived in the world of theory, right? So if you go back though to the theory of what makes any system resilient, Right. And I think one of our problems with the way we've constructed economies today is we've allowed ourselves to forget that you can't just optimize for the perfect setting. You need to you need to also build resilience into your systems. That's why airplanes have 400 million parts. <laughs> you know, there's redundancy. Right. You, so you need redundancy. You need variety. You need diversity of input. Um, and you need you need slack resources. And so I think the companies that have set themselves up to do better have not run totally lean. You know, they've, they've allowed themselves to have pockets of resource that they can then mobilize and redirect. Um, and I would also add, you know, if I look at many great companies that have gotten themselves into horrible financial situations and dug their way out of it, one of the things you'll see is um, uh, that, that they, they have not forgotten about innovation. So the, the textbook case here would be Alan Mullally at Ford, 
who basically said, well, you know, we had to borrow a little money to do some house renovation. <laughs> you know, that's kind of how he framed having to restart the innovation engine at Ford, even though they were in financial distress. He said, you know, eventually we'll no longer be in financial distress. And by the time we get out the other end, we really want to have, um, uh, you know, a very uh, uh, robust portfolio of, of innovations going forward. So, Eve, any thoughts on that? And then we'll have about five minutes for more encouraging or no. general advice for our, our listeners. You know, in some uh, small companies, uh, like in the agriculture, which is not iTech at all, we have seen here, Ron, some companies which are able to switch quite quickly because they had some reserve or some additional resource that they didn't explore so far. So I think it's still possible. It's very difficult to say at this stage because we are in this crisis since uh, maybe two or three weeks. So we will see in a couple of months which kind of company could emerge and, mm -hmm. and will be a little bit better. Uh, also, I would like to add something about ecosystem. I think this idea of circular economy mm -hmm. was a way of uh, encouraging if you want something. Because if you want to address a clear environment issue, and trying to reduce uh, CO2 and so on, I think alone it will be very complicated. And so I guess that this kind of thing could be also a leverage to explore new ways of collaborating inside some new kind of ecosystem. I think it will be also a leverage for doing it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay, so we've got a few minutes left. Um, and so I thought we might close with, with a couple of observations. And the first is really to do with culture. And in the book, you make a huge point about how important culture is. I think it's mostly, most of the last part of the book um, of, of just how building the right culture is, is just so critical. And I think in this time of stress, um, and our friend Tom Colditz says this a lot, he said, if you wanna be a leader in a dangerous or stressful situation, um, you need to have money in the bank. And what he means by that is you can't all of a sudden expect people to trust you. You know, when the crisis is upon you, you have to have been trustworthy all along. And so my, my question to you, I guess, would be, um, so let's say you got a horrible culture. It's just, it's, you know, just not great. It's bureaucratic or it's political or it's whatever. And you want to make it a better culture. What are some things you can do to get started? Yeah, I think that, you know, Years ago, um, a friend of ours, entrepreneur and, and, and writer, Dave Gray, came to us and he said, you know, uh, Alex, Eve, uh, I have these concepts around culture, but I want a simple tool. <laughs> so we worked with him on creating a tool. And as we are, you know, the plumbers of business <laughs> thinking <laughs> and, and tools. Uh, I, I'm not going to be able to unhear that, Alex. <laughs> so we made a tool with him called the Culture Map. And, you know, culture sounds like such a fuzzy concept and everybody has a different definition, but it turns out you can actually design culture. And every time I tweet about that, people say, no, Alex, you're wrong. You can't, you know, can't. Well, you can't design culture like a car. <laughs> you can design culture like a garden, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to create the fertile ground. So what do you work on? You can't change the behavior of people overnight, but you can work on the enablers and the blockers the enablers that allow a certain culture to emerge, good or bad, and the blockers that block a good or bad behavior. That's the only thing you can work on. And you can do that systematically. And I think that's the challenge that people today in, in most companies don't yet think like that. So when it comes to innovation, that's why the last part of the book is, is all about culture. 
you know, we have all these tools, we have all these processes, we have the metrics, we know exactly how it works. Well, why isn't it yet happening? You could say, oh, leaders. But you know, it's not just the leaders, it's what the organizational structures and everything they put in place in terms, again, of enablers and blockers. So you can design culture, and actually you have to design culture if you want something you know, to emerge. And I think most companies, they let culture happen. And yeah. that's a crime. <laughs> that's not, a crime. It's not, they don't intentionally think about it. Yeah. And then maybe just one last point, because when it comes to culture, you know, it's tricky to talk about because you could say, oh, Apple, right? When under Steve Jobs, they had a great culture. They could innovate. Well, they came up with amazing stuff, but it was a terrible culture. So it always <laughs> depends what you want. Like, is it a culture of innovation, but that exploits people? Or is it a culture of innovation that enables people at the same time? That's hard, right? But we should, we should really aspire to create a culture where people can do their best work, they can create value for customers, and we can create you know, financial growth. They don't have to be at the expense of each other. There's these myths, you know, that they're, they're all in actually com conflicting. No, they're not. That's just how it is right now. But we can fix that, right? So I think the, the culture topic is probably one of the next big things, you know, management innovation and culture innovation is going to happen. Mm -hmm. Well, and I would add for those of you that are feeling just kind of frozen in the headlights by all that's going on right now, um, we know from history that these kinds of moments are the moments when organizations, societies become open to big changes because whatever got us to this stage, it, you know, clearly needs to be rethought. And, and I, I, when I'm in my more optimistic moments, I think this is a fantastic opportunity to, you know, rethink the rules of the road for capitalism, rethink the way that corporations think about their stakeholders. Okay, so to get to the commercial part of this webinar, um, how do our listeners learn more? How can we find out more about the book, about you, about what Strategizer does? Um, let, let everybody know where they can get more of this great kind of conversation. So very simple, go to strategizer.com and you'll find actually 100 pages of the book for free. See if you're interested. If you pre-order the book, you'll get a couple of uh, uh, exclusive webinars, pre-book launch till April 14th. You can benefit of those. We'll talk a little bit about you know, the stuff behind it, you know, how we did it, etc. And then, you know, if you are a corporation, you can work with Strategizer. We do pretty, pretty uh, fun stuff, <laughs> technology-enabled services to put everything in place that we were just talking about, innovation, transformation, growth, and, and culture. That's great. Thank you so much. Okay, closing thoughts from any of us. And I know there are questions in the chat that um, we can't get to now, but we will get to later on if you leave us your name and we know who you are. Um, so, Eve, why don't you start with the, the, the last couple of comments? A very personal comment. We started to work together 20 years ago with Alex, and it's a great pleasure to having wrote those book and maybe animate some webinars or created content. So I think it's one of the things that I retain from this big adventure. <laughs> That's fabulous. That's fabulous. And I'll, return, I'll return that one because it's been 20 amazing years and I've learned so much. And to be honest, I'm always surprised that he you know, follows on these adventures because he knows how messy <laughs> these things are and that we're getting into some crazy stuff. So returning Eve, it's a great pleasure to work together for two decades. Oh, that's fabulous. So for our listeners, this uh, conversation has been recorded. Uh, we'll make it available to you once we clean up all the stuff that <laughs> is not very interesting to listen to. Um, and I would encourage all of you to you know, do, use this time to do some reflection on 
what you would like to see come out of this shift uh, beyond just getting over the immediate uh, crisis and how, how you know, this group of people in our ecosystem could be helpful to you. So thank you all very much. Have a wonderful weekend wherever in the world you are. And it's truly been a pleasure. Thank you for making the time, Alex and Eve. And thank you, Rita, for this yeah, thank you. It was great. Thanks. Bye-bye. Take care.